Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Mental health and well-being is crucial to our overall existence, and it seems like we're talking about these topics more so than ever. And the traditional Western model often relies on prescribing medications to manage symptoms in order to function. And while these medications have a place and can relieve a lot of suffering for many people, there is the issue of the one-size approach that it's not a fit for all, and also the issue of not going to and resolving the source of the problem in many cases. My guest today is taking a new approach to mental health. Dr. Ellen Vora graduated from Columbia University Medical School, received her BA from Yale University, and she's also board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. Dr. Vora takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing the problem at the root, rather than reflexively prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. Ellen specializes in depression, anxiety, insomnia, women's mental health, adult ADHD, bipolar, autoimmunity, and digestive issues, and she's currently writing a book about anxiety. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Ellen, thank you so much for coming on the Superhumanized podcast. Mm, Ariana, thank you so much for having me here. Ellen, you are a holistic psychiatrist. Please explain to us what does that exactly mean and what does your job entail? Who the heck knows what that exactly means, but here's my interpretation. Um, when I was taught, how to practice psychiatry in medical school and psychiatry residency, it's really pretty limited. And it's thinking about mental health from the neck up and really only focusing on brain chemistry, thoughts and behaviors. And it's, this isn't going to come as news to anybody who is immersed in Eastern healing traditions, ancient healing traditions. It's really just something we've been getting wrong in the recent past in conventional Western medicine, but nothing is isolated and discreet in the body. Everything is part of a web of interconnections and mental health is absolutely no exception. So something always felt wrong to me about thinking about mental health in such an isolated way. So holistic psychiatry to me is taking into consideration the full portrait of a person's life, of their physical health, their psycho-spiritual health. It's understanding mental health in the context of everything that impacts it. Mm, I love that. And um, you're mentioning that approaching mental health from a a purely biochemical, biochemistry uh, approach that's just not tied into the whole. You know, there's so many layers to us as a human being, what constitutes us. And uh, this kind of uh, view of nature as a machine, as something that's just functioning in a certain way, and only what you can see is part of that machinery. Uh, that has always rubbed me wrong ever since I was a little girl and became aware of this kind of a worldview. Uh, and especially since I delved myself into, you know, healing myself, learning more about how we can have the optimal human experience. What I find so fascinating about you too is um, you are a certified yoga teacher, yoga, which basically means union, right? The union of everything that we are, the spirit and the body. I spent the first four years of my life, first a second set of four years of my life. I was a little girl in New Delhi in India and uh, have been practicing yoga on, a, on and off ever since then. 
Um, so what called you to these really eclectic, different uh, sources and schools of knowledge? Oh, I just want to say you're so lucky that you had exposure to that so early and then that got to be something you could come back to throughout your life. I think back sometimes and wonder if only I had had yoga in high school, in college, in med school, how things might have gone a little differently if I had that practice and um, everything that I, I find that the benefits I get from yoga outclass all of these other interventions that have been offered to me over the years. Um, just that practice of um, even, I think of it as like when you're holding triangle pose in yoga and your leg is shaking and you're trembling and you're like, I really don't want to be in this pose anymore. My body's tired. My muscles are fatigued. Why is the instructor still talking? Why is, did she lose track of time? Why is she holding us in this pose? And then you come back to the breath and you're like, you know what? Maybe I can reframe this experience. Can I take a deep breath? Can I find a reservoir within me to hold this? Um, do I have the capacity to surprise myself with holding equanimity and serenity, even in the face of challenge? And that, I feel like that's what, why yoga drew me in. And that's been a lifeline. And for me, it was initially just a way to survive residency. I found it and I was like, this is how I feel better. This is medicine to me. And then it became, it was a question for me for a long time. How can I help my patients with this? Other than just saying, go do yoga, <laughs> which is sometimes how I end up helping my patients with yoga. But sometimes I find that the philosophy of it can inform psychology. It's, uh, I think about the yamas and the niyamas. And I really find that often when I'm helping a patient reconnect with something like self-love, Often it comes down to coming back to these concepts of satya and ahimsa, which is like truth and non-harming. And to navigate the world, trying to balance those two sometimes slightly contradictory priorities um, is a really wonderful way to witness ourselves navigating our lives from a place of integrity and gentleness, but truth. And it's not an easy balance to strike. But when we try, we witness ourselves and it can really help us see how we're not so bad. We're doing our best out there. We're worthy of love. So I don't know if that answers your question. I just, oh. I just knew as soon as I found that practice and it helped me so much, I was like, this is medicine. If it's medicine for me, chances are it's going to help some of my patients as well. Mm, that is wonderful. Yes, I love your answer, Ellen. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into... Uh, what has influenced you so much as a person and also as, as a healer. Um, and what you just mentioned, the gentleness and the integrity, that is the eternal um, balance that we're all, I think, trying to find. And when something is out of balance, that's when we feel really not good. And something that, of course, is a major obstacle there, especially with regards to the gentleness is that inner critic <laughs> that we all have. Uh, to some degree or the other, you know, it's part of that uh, monkey brain. Uh, uh, but the, the part that always tells you you're too much of this, you're too little of that. Mm -hmm. And I find doing a, having a practice such as, as yoga that calms your nervous system, it calms mine for one, it kind of prep, prepares me for meditation, which I also think is such a valuable tool. It also releases certain emotional pain uh, that we may store in our bodies. And yeah, it really, I find it really helps shut down that inner critic and just finding, even if it's just for a few moments, this, this peace, this relaxation, where even just knowing that that's there can often help us get through a really hard day. I love that you brought up the way it can release emotions because I also find I'm always sort of trying with patients um, some patients come to me and they're already really connected. They're really in touch with their emotions, with their feelings. Some people, we, we need a little bit more work. And I think that when you have that moment in yoga, say you're holding pigeon pose 
and you almost feel like you could cry, like something's bubbling up, it's almost coming out of your hip and emanating and you feel yourself kind of immersed in a wave of emotion. And I feel like that's the gateway drug for a lot of my patients is that feeling of like, wait a second, there's emotion stored in my body. Like I didn't learn about this in high school. <laughs> so that's often the first experience that we get in that somatic connection way where we realize that we hold on to our memories, our traumas, our experiences. And in many ways, it's imprinted in our fascia, in the connections between our muscles and tendons and ligaments and connective tissue. And so it's wonderful to tap into that practice because then we can do it all the time. We can um, be more connected to our bodies in the moments that we're taking in stress, that we're feeling emotions. Mm. And we can listen more carefully with a little bit more, I think it sometimes alerts us to when we need to slow down, when we need to honor a yes or a no from within. Our body has a whole language and way of communicating to us. And it's really only when we get good at slowing down and speaking that language that we can heed that wisdom from within. Yeah, so we actually don't drown out that inner voice and whether it's a truly a voice that comes up in your mind or whether it speaks via your body. I love that you brought up uh, somatic healing. Uh, I had a really powerful, when I didn't even know what that was, I must have been 20 years old. I was living in Berlin at the time and I was immersed in a completely different life. I was uh, hosting TV shows and doing all kinds of stuff and uh um, and I remember us taking singing classes with a wonderful, she was American, uh, very gifted teacher. And she realized one time that I was just super stressed out. So she did something she'd never done. She laid me down on the floor and uh, she asked if she could work with my body for a little bit. And, and she did certain things to my neck and my chest and just opened me up. And then she asked me to breathe. So I was like, whatever, you know, I start breathing and, um, uh, all of a sudden, I just started bawling my eyes. I was just crying. And I was like, what the hell is happening? I was just crying and crying, crying. And it was such a wonderful release. And at the time, I didn't know that this was, um, you know, likely a, a somatic healing. I had just so much stress and tension stored within me. And when I was young, I was used to, you know, being German born. I had a very loving uh, family. Uh, the German roots, though, you're not necessarily taught by the culture to allow your emotions to come up. Um, and generally, I think, you know, we're, we're taught to suppress emotions that don't fit in the paradigm that we're currently living in. Let's say you live in a family where as a girl, you're not supposed to get angry or as a boy, you're not supposed to cry. So you'll learn the certain very natural and healthy expressions of yourself. Uh, for example, anger, standing up for yourself, putting up boundaries, that those are not desired. And in order to be loved and accepted, you need to learn to suppress these, right? So that just sets off a whole uh, snowball effect of other things. And yeah, and then you end up at some point and <laughs> somebody manipulates uh, asking for consent, of course, your body in a certain way. And whoa, there's all this stuff going on. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think it's extreme. It's, it's pronounced in Germany, but so many of us wake up to the fact that we've come of age in an emotion phobic culture. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's, it's interesting how, like crying, I think is in particular something we get wrong. And when we cry, we apologize, we say, I'm sorry. And we try to suck it back in and make it as small as it can be. And this is even true with my patients who sit across from me. This is their therapy session. If it's safe to cry anywhere, it's in therapy. Like my office is surround sound tissues. I'm basically saying like crying is okay in this space. And then I'll say encouraging things and hold my body language and use words to encourage patients to let their crying be bigger. But it's even, even in that context, it's really difficult to let it be big. And I've personally found, um, I don't know if our plan was to talk about psychedelics at all, but yes, <laughs> we'll go there. Psychedelics, I've found that that kind of medicine has given me this like 
access to a quantum different level of crying that I didn't even know was accessible. And I, I feel like I make this progress with grief and with moving through emotions in psychedelic ceremony where I cry so big. It feels like the crying version of natural childbirth. It's just the biggest cry. And occasionally I'll be in ceremony with someone who'd be like, are you okay? But anybody who knows me is like, she's okay. <laughs> she's good. She's exactly in her happy place, which is like a very deep cry. It's a release. It feels like sometimes I'm opening up a portal that allows grief through that's even not just my own, like whether it's past generations or patients of mine or family members, like it's just anybody come on in. There's like a portal open and let the grief waters flow through. Um, and so, yeah, I think that crying is something we really misunderstand. And the more of us that can just start to normalize and say, I don't need to put that middleman in between my emotions and the culture, like let the emotions come up and let them be and, and feel them as they arise, feel them fully. Don't feel the need to apologize or be ashamed for them or mold ourselves to fit this cultural conditioning and expectations that we're all starting to wake up to the fact that it's not really serving any of us. Not at all. And that is uh, beautiful what you just said. And it's beautiful also what you said when you feel like, uh, so it's not just your tears, it's actually, you know, whether it's the ancestors or if you, you know, also if you uh, look into the whole hypothesis of time not being linear and, you know, it's your ancestors, it's maybe also even people who come after you, it's every, your, your clients, your patients, uh, or just grief from others. There's this uh, beautiful meditation. Uh, it's called a Tonglen meditation, where actually you uh, take on the grief or the hurt, the pain of the world, especially when you yourself don't feel great. Um, and it's a way of letting all this course through you. Uh, giving it a release. Of course, you also don't feel so alone anymore. And, and you use yourself as this healing channel um, for the world. And, you know, as a side effect, you yourself heal also. And, you know, I would have been probably mm, even a year ago or so I would have been, and maybe I still would be, who knows, I would be one of your patients and be like, I'm so sorry, Alan, you know, I'd be crying and I'd probably try to excuse, you know, I'm sorry and, and feel bad for putting that onto you. I know very, very well what you described there. Uh, and I think, um, you know, all these emergent therapies, uh, we have a great deal of study going on into, um, uh, you know, psychedelics assisted therapy, whether it's psilocybin, MDMA, we have ketamine. I actually just this morning had my third ketamine infusion a treatment. And uh, I, it's, I have been, I've spoken about this multiple times on this podcast. I've been dealing with anxiety uh, and also mood swings, not clinical depression, but just depressive episodes for a long time in my life. And I've done a lot of self-work, a lot of, there's a lot of beautiful things you can do uh, to manage symptoms, breath work and stuff. But these emerging new therapies, uh, I, I, I was, I was amazed at how I could feel literally in the moment. And then also days after how certain things just felt like they were gone, healed, non-existent anymore as in fine, you know, because you, you you get to process things from a neutral space and without all the hurts attached that you usually do. And then you're able to, if not let them go, but at least let them exist within you without this fear, pain, and judgment. So I'd love to hear about your take. I heard that you actually um, also had an experience with uh, ayahuasca. And I'd love to hear your take on these new uh, possibilities to treat people where we're just mm -hmm. really experiencing such a revolution in a sense now. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think it's so special that we're talking on the same day that you've had a ketamine infusion. That's, <laughs> that's magical. So, yeah, I think that, I think, you know, there's a lot that's not right in the world right now, but there's one thing that makes me feel hopeful and grateful to be alive in this moment is that we are in this new psychedelic renaissance and an appreciation. I have so much gratitude for the way this recent batch of scientists have approached it. 
They've been meticulous. They've been really savvy about how to structure it and to basically recognize this is a bit of a PR obstacle. It's going to be a tough sell with the legality considerations and all of that. And so they've approached it so cautiously and carefully and with wisdom. And so now we've really created a foundation with excellent evidence basis for the use of substances like psilocybin, like ketamine, for depression, for end-of-life angst, for I think increasingly we're seeing for OCD, for substance abuse, you see ibogaine and its potential for um, supporting opiate addiction. And so there's really so much to be hopeful about. And it of course comes with caveats. It's not right for everyone, for all phases of life, for all settings. There's there's care that needs to be taken, not to mention reverence. I think of these substances as sacred and we in the United States and the West have a tendency to kind of bottlerize and really kind of make everything commercial and gross. And so like we want to retain that reverence for how sacred these substances are. But I think we have a shot at making them more accessible to more people and really um, allowing for a paradigm shift in how we move through mental illness. Um, many of my patients in my practice are working with ketamine. Some of them are working in sort of more of an underground way with substances like psilocybin and ayahuasca. There are ways to go to the parts of the world where they're legal and have a legal experience. And I've been in absolute awe and um, like the way people leap when they start working with this medicine. My patients who have felt stuck for so long, who have had so much trauma to work through, who have really not made a lot of progress, no matter what trick and what approach. And, you know, I bring all the Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, conventional medicine, talk therapy, CBT. We bring so many tools to the treatment, but really nothing has held a candle to the way psychedelics have helped my patients move through. Mm. I uh, That moves my heart to hear that also from you. And it gives me real hope for, you know, people individually to get to release the suffering and to be able to bloom into their full potential and become self-actualized. It also gives me tremendous hope for humanity. It takes just a certain amount, a certain number of people. It doesn't have to be even the majority of the global population, but just a certain tipping point type of amount of people who are able to move beyond the conditioning uh, that is causing so much pain, beyond the trauma that has been passed on for generations to help uplift the rest and to also potentially help us, you know, not just to heal ourselves, but to really become stewards of this beautiful planet. So, you know, this is, uh, the healing is one side and then the other side is, uh, there's, there's so, so much potential from what I've read uh, with regards to these emerging treatments and medicines to also help us become the best versions of ourselves, whether we look at creativity or better focus, a different way of relating to each other, whether it's in smaller circles of our families or society as a whole, once you tap into this feeling that I also had, um, you know, while uh, undergoing ketamine and it, it really sticks with you, you know, you also get that during meditation or using other modalities when you just tap into this, wow, I'm, I'm a part of this larger whole. I'm not this isolated little ego floating around in a hostile space. And, you know, therefore I just have all kinds of <laughs> stuff coming out and, and I'm not acting healthily and lovingly towards myself and others. But once you plug into this, yes, this is all one, uh, you can't help. You're compelled to act in a completely different way. You relate to yourself and others in the world in a completely different way. And I feel compelled to sort of bring two pieces to this conversation. And one is a caveat and one is um, the, some of the science for why we find it so effective and so helpful. And um, two of the ways that I think psychedelics are most impactful, and there's a lot to be said about the science of how it's working and the ideology. But one piece of it is the way it, um, helps us secrete BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. 
and that enhances our neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, which is a lot of words to describe basically that we can grow and change and adapt. And I think of it like if you're already doing a practice like meditation or yoga or breath work or something called DNRS, which is I think dynamic neural retraining system, um, if you're doing these kinds of practices to help work through trauma, to help regulate your nervous system or heal a limbic system pattern that's no longer serving you, when you are in that window after psychedelics, it's almost like anything you're doing works double. It's almost like if you think about the NPR, when they're sort of saying like, donate to NPR, and then one day in the drive, they're like, now we have a donor who's doubling whatever donation you make. And it's like your money goes further and your meditation practice goes further in the window after a psychedelic ceremony. And there's also this aspect of how it helps quiet down the parts of the brain associated with what's called the default mode network or the DMN, which is really where our brain hangs out when it's not focused on a task and it's kind of just in that sense of future tripping and dwelling on the past. And future tripping is really at the heart of anxiety and dwelling on the past is really at the heart of depression. And that's where so many of us hang out when we're not focused on something else. We're not in the present moment. We're not focused on a task. We're just kind of in our brain. We each have our tendency. What are we thinking? We're afraid of the future or are we regretting the past? And it keeps us stuck in depression and anxiety. And I think that it, it also relates to this separation of ourselves as an individual. I think of it as an evolutionary adaptation to a certain extent. It helps us navigate the world and anticipate negative consequences and learn from mistakes. And it, it helps us survive as an individual and kind of look out for our own. But that takes us only so far in terms of our spiritual evolution. And what we, are, I think, are poised for as a society is spending a little bit less time in that default mode network of I, me, mine, and a little bit more time with that barrier, with a dissolution of it, where we start to feel how interconnected we are, kind of like what, how we started talking about the body. The brain is not separate from the rest. We as an individual, we're not separate from every other sentient being. Um, and even I have a pretty expanded definition of what's a sentient being, like the plants in my living room are sentient beings, yes. in my opinion. Oh, and I so, talk to my plants. I hug and kiss my oak trees. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. And so it's basically like this is how we heal, I think, on the collective level is when we spend time in ceremony, psychedelic ceremony, and quiet down that default mode network. So the caveat is that... Um, I think that we're talking it up so much. And for anyone who's listening and it's just like, okay, so I guess I got to go do psychedelics and then snap my fingers and I'll magically be healed. And it certainly is not like that. If anything, it really just unblocks us to do pretty big, effortful, sometimes difficult, sometimes messy healing work. Yes. So it's not a snap of your fingers, silver bullet. It just opens the door and you can walk into that healing space that itself is um, there's, there's a lot of meat there that like, like I said, I cry, like I'm a natural childbirth and ceremony. It's not always pretty or easy, but to me, that's the work I need to do. And I think psychedelics unblock us. Yes. I love that you said it's work because it's not an escape. It's not necessarily a fun ride. It's work. And it is, I like to call it, it's like the old ancient alchemists called it the great work is the transmutation of the self to make the lead of ourselves to gold, you know, and there's nothing wrong with lead. Like there's nothing wrong with the muck or the, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, the mud, uh, the lotus flower needs to have the roots in to then blossom. So everything has its place. And as long as it's in flow, and this is what these, uh, what, um, you know, these treatments uh, can do for us. They can unblock us. They can open the door. We walk through the doors without that judgment that we usually have. And I love what you just um, said about neuroplasticity and that after undergoing certain treatments that that's actually the perfect time um, uh, if you are focused on that to actually get more out of a certain practice or something that you want to integrate and whether it's meditation, whether it's, uh, um, I would be curious to find out, you know, 
the further we get down the road on using these uh, medicines on a regular basis where it becomes normal and just much more wider available for people, how it can also be used uh, people learning quicker, um, mm. you know, using this, this, this state of neuroplasticity to ingrain, to, to fuse certain synaptic connections for new things. Um, that is absolutely fascinating. That's interesting. I never thought about it as, you know, ayahuasca as your study aid, like the new Adderall. <laughs> but I think that in a way, in my experience, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen research on this. I don't know if it exists. I think it's a really interesting line of, of inquiry to pursue. But for me, it, it's not so much that I suddenly become better at memorizing, say, but it's almost like it enhances our ability to think synthetically, to draw the connections and recognize the patterns and I just think we become better thinkers when we have this global increase in neuroconnectivity. Um, but that's really interesting to think about it as enhancing our ability to learn. Yeah. Um, it certainly helps us learn habits. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about uh, something that just seems to be ailing so many people, especially, you know, these last one and a half years we've been going through and are still going through uh, with regards to the pandemic. Uh, people suffering from anxiety and also depression. When do we know, how do we know that what's the difference between a clinical depression versus a quote, normal depression, the latter of which, which I think I on and off in my life have had, but how do you know, how do you distinguish this? Yeah. So I get this question a lot and I still have yet to perfect an answer to it. And so my, my answer, which is a very non-answer is totally infuriating. So you've been prepared, but I, I sort of throw away that distinction. Yeah. And it's not to say to be cavalier or careless. If you are unsafe in any way, if you have significant distress, it's impacting your quality of life, of course, get the help you need. But I think that we have a real crisis right now of what it means to get help and what happens when you open up that can of worms. Um, it's first of all, difficult to overcome the barriers of um, there's shame, there's stigma, there's we're busy, we feel overscheduled. And then even if you get past those barriers, you're like, okay, I'm going to get help. It's inaccessible often. Sometimes there isn't a therapist or psychiatrist in your area. Sometimes if there is, they're booked forever and then it's expensive. And even beyond that, even if you make it through all of those hurdles to be realistic, what happens when you get help is very often you walk in, you have a few minutes to talk about the full catastrophe of your life and you walk out with a prescription yeah. and I'm not sure we're helping. And there are certainly times when medications help, no question. I have patients who are helped by medication. I prescribe medication occasionally. Um, but so often it's not actually addressing the true root of the problem. And sometimes it's making things worse. And so what I really think is that worry less about the distinction between is this real clinical depression and anxiety or is this just life being hard? And focus instead on if you're asking that question, you're suffering in a meaningful way. So do get help. But what that help looks like should be, we should proceed carefully. And you want to get help that effectively is going to help you heal. And I'm a proponent of the fact that the real determinants of our mental health, it's not just this kinetic, kinetic uh, genetic chemical imbalance that is like a destiny that says we're going to have a chemical imbalance. We're going to have low serotonin for our life. We're broken in this way and only a pill can fix it. And therefore you need the ivory tower of medicine and someone with a prescription pad um, to help you. I don't think that's the whole truth. I think it's our least hopeful narrative. In fact, around mental health, I believe the real determinants of our mental health have a lot more to do with the quality of our sleep and our nutrition, whether or not we're inflamed, the health of our gut, the quality of our relationships, the, whether or not we're connected to meaning and purpose in our lives, to nature, to laughter. Um, our, how is our job? Is it inhumane? I think these are the determinants of our mental health. And a lot of that, we can make quite a bit of progress on our own. So I don't want to encourage anyone to do anything irresponsible. If you're unsafe, it's not time to go gluten-free. It's time to get help to keep you safe. But if you are thinking, ah, I'm suffering, is it enough to warrant seeing a psychiatrist? 
that's a really great entry point to say, well, maybe I need to prioritize earlier bedtime. Maybe I need to do a little gut healing, maybe add the bone broth in and ghee and maybe um, take out some foods that seem to be irritating my digestion. Um, can I invest in the good relationships in my life? Can I set some boundaries in the problematic relationships in my life? Can I just go down the street to the park and take off my socks and shoes and stand barefoot in the grass for a few minutes? Um, exercise, just like movement for 10 minutes, something like that can be incredibly powerful. And no one's really selling us this messaging. Mm -hmm. So we don't have it. We're not having quite enough of a conversation yet about how empowered we can feel about impacting our own mental health. Yes. And I, I love all the different things you bring up that can be done to just put us into a state of feeling more balanced from the nutrition to the exercise movement. I was just listening to a, a wonderful podcast of Aubrey Marcus. He was interviewing his guest, a healer, somatic healer, a guy named Porongi. And he uh, said, you know, we talked about emotions before and suppressing emotions. And he also talked about, you know, the suppressing of emotions and then also how important it is to move. In his case, it was by ecstatic dance, mm -hmm. uh, but emotion, emotion you know, um, emotions in motion to have everything move through your body that a lot of people actually also get a release of, of emotions by putting their bodies in motion. You know, if you just dance without giving a damn, you know, who's looking on and how you may look like, but just move your body in ways you've never done before. Or if even you just do some jumping jacks, I mean, I, when I'm in a state that I don't feel comfortable in my mind, my, my, my spirit. And when I'm, I'm not perfect, I got to keep reminding myself <laughs> of that many, many times. But when I do remind myself, you know, I'm, I'm not digging the state that I'm in. I'm going to, I'm going to get myself a state change. So what I often do is I'll even just do some jumping jacks, uh, move my body for a couple of minutes uh, or even some breath work and boom, all of a sudden, that state that caused you to feel so unhappy just mere minutes ago, it's poof, it's dissolved, it's gone just by moving your body or by moving your breath, just by letting all these things move through you. And it can be so, so healing. Uh, you also um, are very much focused on anxiety. You're writing a book about it, as I mentioned in the introduction. And from, for somebody like me who's been dealing with that on and off pretty much all my life, and I know that it's rooted somewhere in childhood, I've done a lot of self-work on that as well, I know that certain substances can increase it, such as caffeine or, you know, not sleeping. Um, and there's, you said that's so much that we think about as unavoidable anxiety is just the physiological dance that occurs as a result of this, you know, the overconsumption of alcohol, caffeine, sugar, or lack of sleep. Can you talk a little bit about that to us? Yeah. So Ariana, I'm so glad you brought this up. And it's, it's funny, you, you mentioned the book and dance um, juxtaposed there, because certainly that's how I got through the process of writing a book where you get into so much mental gridlock. And it's sometimes really you know, revisions, I found really emotionally tough to face, like, here's what's wrong with the book and needs to be improved. And that's, that's a challenge. And so that state change, I would just put on Beyonce, and I would dance for a song. And it would remind me, I mean, certainly it would move the energy, it would change my state of mind, but it also just connects me to someone else who's really tapped into their creative source energy, you know, someone with a work ethic who works hard, you know, it really inspired me to be like, you know what, like Beyonce is extremely talented, but this isn't effortless. She works, she works hard. And I had to keep coming back to that and be like, you know what, if I want this book to impact people and make a difference, I better work. <laughs> so I would dance, I would feel connected to that source creative energy. And then I would sit my butt back in the chair and get back to work. And um, so, yeah, the way I think about anxiety is that it's almost like we have something called false anxiety and true anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I'll caveat this by saying false anxiety, it's not to invalidate the experience of anxiety, which is very real and very painful, um, but it's really to sort of draw attention to the fact that it's avoidable anxiety. 
So a different way of saying it would be almost like avoidable anxiety and purposeful anxiety. And that avoidable anxiety is where so many of us spend so much of our lives and we get medicated for it. We see doctors for it. And actually we could have addressed it at the root. And it comes down to certain seemingly mundane things that can have a huge impact. Our blood sugar swings during the day. If we are not, you know, if our bodies are not well adapted to fasting states, if we're living on sugar and refined carbohydrates, we can have our sugar spike and our blood sugar crash. And that precipitates a stress response, which can feel synonymous with anxiety. Or some of us are sensitive to caffeine and that can make us feel anxious. And we don't know to point to the caffeine because the caffeine also relieved us from the caffeine withdrawal that we wake up with every morning. So we think caffeine, that can't be my problem. That's my best friend. But it, it just scratched the itch of its own withdrawal. And then it leaves <laughs> us in a stress response. It's not a great friend. It's a shitty friend. Um, but nothing against caffeine. It works for some people. But just for all of us, we need to be open to the possibility of maybe less or maybe earlier in the day or maybe not at all. And sleep quality is huge. Um, alcohol is a really unpopular conversation, but alcohol, if no one else is going to spread this message, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that challenge, which is basically alcohol modulates the way GABA, our neurotransmitter GABA, behaves in the brain. And GABA is very central to anxiety. And we want healthy, juicy GABA functioning to feel less anxious. What alcohol does and why it feels so good is that it really increases the release of GABA in our synapses. But the brain sees that and thinks, well, that's too much GABA. That's potentially dangerous because if a leopard came around the corner, we'd be too buzzed to care. And so it thinks this is unsafe. So let's reabsorb that GABA. Let's convert it to glutamate, which is excitatory. And then basically once we have sobered up, we're suddenly very anxious. And in the long term, cumulatively, this also has an impact on the expression of our GABA receptors. So then it's almost like we have normal levels of GABA, but we don't have a way of hearing the GABA, which is also how our benzodiazepine medications work, things like clonopin and Valium and Ativan and Xanax. So all of this starts to really, really exacerbate the very problem we're using it to help with in the first place. If you're drinking for social anxiety or to take the edge off, it temporarily takes the edge off. And then by the next day, it's made the edge bigger. And that's the problem. And so there's all these different physiologic things that are mundane, that are normal, that are just part of a seemingly generally kind of virtuous life, coffee and alcohol and being sleep deprived and scrolling on our phones until 11 p.m. But they're all contributing to anxiety. So that's the avoidable anxiety. And then we can talk about the purposeful anxiety. Oh, yes. That's really where we couldn't medicate that away if we tried. That is our truth. And it is a part of our inner intuition and knowing that is alerting us to the fact that something is very wrong and needs our attention. And that can be in our personal life. It can be globally around us. It's something where it's part of our purpose is to wake up and recognize a problem and address it. And it feels like a state of unease. But once we take action and start to respond to that call to action, it doesn't feel quite like anxiety. It feels purposeful. It feels like we have a duty. And that's, I think, a really different way of framing anxiety. So to me, it's not like, are you clinically anxious or are you fine? It's, okay, you're anxious. I don't care how anxious. You're anxious. It matters. What's causing it? Is this avoidable? Let's address that. Or is this purposeful? Let's address that. Wow. I love that purposeful anxiety. And it makes so much sense. So many people feel anxious today. And whether it's the avoidable anxiety, I mean, we are over caffeinated and God knows what else we've got going on that we're just trying to manage symptoms, our exhaustion or, or whatnot, uh, caffeine just being one of those, or the alcohol, take the edge off. Uh, what you explained there makes total sense. I mean, I love a good red wine. I love a scotch neat every once in a while, but there have been times, you know, whether it was times of stress where, you know, I've never had a problem with alcoholism, but you know, there are maybe a few weeks, for example, a last year where every night I just have a drink or two just to take the edge of, and then you feel worse the next day, right? <laughs> it's just, and, and even when you just in, in community and you have fun and you share a glass of wine or two with friends, I'm super sensitive towards it. 
the next day just don't really feel great. So it's no surprise that that there's this anxiety going around, you know, the avoidable type, uh, but also the purposeful one. We're living in a world that is in a lot of distress. We're certainly getting a lot of distress signals via the daily barrage of media bombarding us. And of course, it's also communicated in a way uh, that's alarming and causes fear when it bleeds, it leads, right? Um, but so when we notice something is really wrong and in disarray, uh, it's, it's, it's normal. The state, you know, you look at uh, the natural environment, you look at all the crisis zones around the planet, you look at the crisis we've been going through with the pandemic. So this purposeful anxiety that alerts us to that there's something intrinsically wrong, that's also prevalent. So... I'm so glad you brought up media because it really actually exploits our purposeful anxiety bone because in many ways, like we're here to listen for what's not right. But in this kind of banal, not malicious way, the media has figured out that fear sells. You know, we will stay gripped. We will rubberneck. We will tune in and click and scroll if something makes us feel uncertain, fearful, doubtful. And so in a way, we're being bathed in excessive amounts of fear just because people are trying to make a buck and they want our attention. It's the attention economy and our attention is the commodity that people are vying for. And I'm going to do something now, which is sort of to add a layer of complexity to all of this. So it's very helpful to know about avoidable anxiety and to identify it in your lives and figure out what your false anxieties are and address them at the root. And then here's the thing is that sometimes you can be fully aware if I eat this, if I drink this, if I do this, it's going to cause some avoidable anxiety. And in that moment, the right choice is to go for it. And so that's where life gets kind of spicy because sometimes like I know that when I go to sleep early, I sleep better. I feel better the next day. Sometimes a friend is in from out of town and they're hanging out in my living room and we can sit around the living room and drink whiskey neat until 2 a.m. talking and connecting. And it's all the wrong things and it creates all kinds of avoidable anxieties, but it's globally the right thing in life because actually nothing matters more than our relationships. Yes. And connection and it's sometimes worth uh, uh, knowingly inviting in a little bit of avoidable anxiety to enrich our lives in that way absolutely and when you kind of know that that's what it is when it pops up then it looks much less than this huge dragon trying to eat you up but it looks more like this muppet like this little gremlin and you can just be like okay i know what you are just calm yes. down yes and what you just said is so true too you know nothing matters more um you also emphasize that the single most important element that supports our well-being and also our vitality at any age is community. Um, why is community so important? And how can we build a great community? We're just wired for it. So many things are just sort of accidents of evolution. This is who we are. We're human beings. We're social animals. And we survive best when we're in a tribe on the sort of proverbial savanna of evolution. So because of that, we feel safe and at ease when we're surrounded by our community. And we feel out of a state. We're not at ease. We are Feel, we feel troubled when we're disconnected and estranged from our people. And so there's no like moral high ground to this. It's just the design because we're not cats. Like we are not things that can just go exist and be like a solo hunter. We're humans, we're social. And so um, it's why in our modern world where we're siphoned off in our cars and our studio apartments and mansions in the suburbs, why we're all feeling so disconnected and social media is incredible. The internet is incredible and in how it allows us to, you know, we can zoom with someone across the world and we can FaceTime and all of that, but it's artificial sugar, you know, like we get this seeming taste of something sweet. And then afterward, there's like a chemical aftertaste. We're like, did I really actually just fulfill my need for social connection or was it just the appearance of it? And I'm sort of, my jury is out, like whether it's net good or bad. I think that you kind of want to use technology, but not um, let it be your only access point to connection and community. So like, it's wonderful that you and I can be talking right now. And this wouldn't happen without technology. Um, we live on opposite coasts. 
but then I'm also going to go and physically connect in person with people after this. So it's like, you need to meet all these different needs. Yes. And with regards to when you have a healthy community uh, around you and what actually changes, can you measure changes in cognitive function uh, and all over well-being when people are tied to a community? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of evidence at this point that, um, and even some really incredible, like longitudinal perspective studies where they're following people sometimes for 70 years. And it turns out what enhances cognitive function and happiness and a sense of well being is relationships, full stop. And so if you have to sacrifice everything else to protect that, it's probably the right decision. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I mean, I've certainly witnessed in my own life. Have with the pandemic, as you see more and more people that have been really isolated this past year and almost year and a half, we um, you see how we are kind of, we're missing a beat. We're, we're just all a little bit like neurologically, we've, we're missing some balance and coordination physically and mentally. And it's something that it, it atrophies. We, we keep it sharp and practiced when we're out in the world, you know, kind of Think about coordination when your physical body, if you're hiking and walking on uneven surfaces, that's helping keep that part of your body toned. And similarly, we need to be out interacting and dealing with the, the challenges of interpersonal connection, dealing with people's reactions and are they smiling or are they lying? You know, we need to be flexing those muscles to keep ourselves sharp in that way. And so we need to dust off the habit of connecting. Right. Very, very uh, important. And uh, also what you mentioned before, you know, we are not cats, we are tribal animals, so to speak. And when we don't have that community, our, our brain is just giving us these signs of danger, 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 because not having a community, uh, it's, it, it touches us on an existential level, because thinking back to our forebears, this is when you didn't have a community, your likelihood of dying alone was just so much higher, right? So yeah. with regards to um, people who have had negative experiences or no good, no experience at all with community, uh, for example, in childhood, there's this thing called adverse childhood experience. And that when you have had these kinds of experiences as a child, that it really can influence anything in your life, whether it's your immune system, your lifespan, your risk of dementia, uh, digestive issues, and such, um, even, even cancer. So that adverse childhood events play a really significant role in determining your general health and well-being all throughout your life. So when you deal with a patient who actually has some, you know, deep-rooted uh, traumatic experiences, every body, of course, is different. There's different approaches for every individual. I'm very well aware of that. But is there sort of a guidebook looking at it from a holistic perspective? Are there certain steps that you would take to try to unfurl that, to open that up and help, help that heal? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's certainly a focus in my practice. I don't think I have all the answers, but basically you're exactly right. Adverse childhood experiences or in the research referred to as ACEs are a kind of toxic level of stress and it's like poison to the body. And a big part of how it increases conditions like autoimmune disease later in life, certainly mental illness, decreasing lifespan, it's um, part of it is epigenetic. And that's where, you know, we have our, blueprints in our genes, but everything in nature is dynamic. Nothing is just set and written in stone and genes are no exception. So we are, um, we're in this dynamic relationship with the world around us and our, our, it's almost like our body, our genes are listening for the environment and based on what it hears, it's going to modulate and change expression of certain genes. So if we are bathed in a stressful environment, we're gonna modulate our DNA, we're gonna methylate certain ways that our serotonin transporters behave. And it's gonna make us more inclined to be depressed, to be cut off, to not trust. And in certain ways, and it's, it's an adaptation, 
Because if you grow up in an environment that says people are not to be trusted, it's not safe. It's adaptive to close ourselves off, at least in the short term. And then in adulthood, that's where we get to open up that question and say, well, is it still adaptive or has this become maladaptive? So I think a really big part of moving through that is having reparative experiences. And sometimes that means seeking out different kinds of people in your life. If you had a bad model in your parents, which I think it's always important to pan out and not really blame parents necessarily, but to see that with compassion and understanding. They were working through their own trauma, their own conditioning, their own difficult, disenfranchised circumstances. So it's always like, if you look to blame, it's a very slippery, it's a slippery thing. It's hard, you know, you're blaming ancestors thousands of years ago. And so basically, but say you had bad models in your caretakers growing up, then you might be seeking out partners that are familiar, that remind you of that. And so to have a reparative experience, you need to seek out a different kind of partner, somebody with healthy object relations, healthy attachment pattern. And sometimes we just think of that as someone boring, no chemistry, not who I want to be with. So we have to kind of get past that barrier and say, oh, actually, that's a good person. That's a person with integrity. That's a person with healthy boundaries. That's a person that's not always fishing for validation. And as much as that feels unfamiliar and not exciting, maybe I should pursue that and give it a try. And then when you're in a connection with someone with secure attachment and healthy boundaries, you can just tiptoe forward with practicing trust practicing basically what happens if I allow myself to be vulnerable? Do I get hurt or do I actually get caught and held? And every time you kind of tiptoe out onto that ice and find that you're safe, that can be really healing to the childhood experiences. So you do have to do it in a safe container. It can also happen with a therapist. But basically you want to try to accumulate reparative experiences in adulthood so that you start to see that the world isn't necessarily as cruel and unsafe as your childhood environment. You're allowed to change what environment you create for yourself in adulthood. Right. And uh, something we talked about before were these emerging treatments, uh, you know, used in a clinical setting and with your therapist like ketamine or MDMA to have these kinds of uh, medicines at your disposal in a controlled environment. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that supports, and there's a lot of research going on how that can actually help uh, really resolve old trauma and help people to get to be in a place, not where you forget, but where you're at peace with what happened and uh, where you're out of this constant state of fight or flight that certain experiences may have caused and also out of the state of feeling uh, victimized by the world, because that's what you may have experienced, you know, often from very early on, and where you are just in a place of peace and and feel like you're in charge and you can create, co-create your experience and that the experience is not just something thrown at you, but that you actually can actively uh, co-create it. Um, Another thing with regards to psychedelics, in another interview, you talked about psychedelics for anti-aging. So how and why could, could psychedelics, psychedelics potentially help with anti-aging and, and what, with what regards specifically to anti-aging? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I want to, I want to tack something onto what you just said about MDMA, which I think, and we haven't talked much about MDMA yet, but I really sometimes wish it could just be always on the menu in couples therapy, because there's something about the ways we get stuck in vicious cycles and repetitive patterns of hurt and misunderstanding in our relationships where MDMA, which is an empathogen, which allows us to feel more empathy can make us show up in these relationships where rather than just being defended in a kind of me versus you and I've got all this armor up, it takes away our defenses and expands our capacity for empathy for the other person's experience. And that is usually what unlocks a couple to be able to move forward and start to create understanding where there was misunderstanding. Um, And it's incredibly powerful. So psychedelics for anti-aging, I'm trying to think what I would have said. I do think that there's an interesting role for how they can be anti-inflammatory. 
And they, you know, it's just like one additional feature. It's like a nice to have on top of everything else is that I, I do think that they're healing medicines. Like they work in the sense of the experience we have in ceremony and the increased neuroplasticity we have after a ceremony. But there's also this medicine then in your bloodstream that's healing in its own right. And I think with a certain amount of wisdom. So, and in terms of aging, I mean, aging is a really interesting thing. And I'm not in the business of like fine lines on your face, you know, <laughs> like I think that that's its own other conversation. But I think of aging as this continuum of like being flexible and juicy and kind of hydrated and nimble to being rigid and stiff and dry and brittle. And that happens with our bones and it happens with our mindset and our personalities. And I think that psychedelics do keep us younger in the sense that they make us bendier. They make us more flexible and juicier and kind of like inclined to not believe everything we think. And so in that respect, I think that it's powerfully anti-aging. Um, yeah. Awesome. And there is something I'd really love to know from you with regards to your practices. We've spoken about yoga, of course. What are some of the practices that have been with you that are with you right now or have been with you for a long time in your life that have really, you know, uh, helped you mentally, physically, or spiritually? When I studied integrative medicine at the University of Arizona back now, this is like more than 10 years ago, um, this woman, Anne-Marie Chiasson, taught us a practice called Shake It Out, where she put on shamanic drum music, which helps the brain go into a theta brainwave pattern. And then all you do is like close your eyes and stand kind of loose and you just shake however your body feels like shaking. You could do it for a few minutes. I usually have time to do it for like 90 seconds. And I do that most days. And I find it, it accomplishes a couple things. One is it's a reset. You know, it's that, it's that state change that we were talking about earlier. It's reparative in the sense that I listen to my body and how it feels like moving rather than dancing in a way that I think looks cool or appropriate. And you just listen and honor what your body needs. And it, it has that control alt delete quality that animals achieve when they complete the stress cycle, when they shake after a, an acute stressor, they basically are discharging the excess adrenaline and they're telling their nervous system, the threat has passed and now I'm safe. And so when I shake for 90 seconds after a day of patience and stressors and all of this, um, my nervous system gets that control alt delete and it's just a reset. And then I can approach the rest of the day clearer and so that's one of my favorite practices. It's free. It takes less than two minutes and it works. Oh my God. Um, I love that. And I mean, yes, animals. I mean, I have a little Yorkie. Teddy's like four pounds, nothing. And he, he always shakes from the tips of his little ears to the tip of his little tail. <laughs> and the world is biting him. And you know something that's really fascinating. So I had my third ketamine infusion this morning. Uh, tomorrow I'll have my fourth. A, lot, a week ago, I had number one and number two. And the first ketamine infusion, actually, towards the end of it, I had, I have experienced that before, you know, for example, after a deep meditation or other healing modalities, so I wasn't afraid of it, plus I was controlled, my blood pressure, everything was controlled, and I'm very healthy, I was not afraid of it, but towards the end of the ketamine treatment, I had this, my entire body started just shaking, I knew you know, there's this, uh, I mean, ketamine, of course, is not a plant medicine in the sense, but there's also an intelligence there. And I knew this was part of me literally shaking things off yeah. and it felt so good after. So this, I love what you just shared about shaking. I have to try that. That's brilliant. Yeah. The takeaways today is more crying and more shaking. Um, <laughs> shaking is so much physical wisdom. And I love how in psychedelic ceremonies, my body just starts like all kinds of shaking, all kinds of vibrating and my knees sort of knocking together and all of that really helps release. There's a limbic discharge that happens. There's a release from the fascia and the nervous system, and it just takes things up and out. And whether it feels involuntary, where you have a little bit of control over it, it's all good. Um, another practice that I, I believe in strongly is just not keeping the phone in the bedroom at night. Mm. And that's a big one. That one's also simple and free and very impactful. 
And it's just a bit of an, a hump to get over psychologically because we all think, well, it's my alarm clock, it's my lifeline, but what if someone calls? And you can get past all of that. There are solutions to all of that. And what it means is that we don't have this temptation to scroll and phones are designed where there's no natural stopping point. So we scroll endlessly and we stay up too late. And a lot of it is doom and gloom and that puts us in a stress response. It's harder to fall asleep and wake up the next day energized to deal with the doom and gloom of the world. And then also it's that blue spectrum light that disrupts our circadian rhythm. And so for so many reasons, getting the phone out of the bedroom um, is really wonderful. And also a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night. They like to clock watch, which is like, you want to know what time it is. And here's a pro tip. Um, some of us are stressed or our bedrooms are too warm or whatever it is. And we're waking up throughout the night, but a lot of us just wake up once in the middle of the night. And it's actually a normal physiologic wake up. It's called middle sleep. And it's the break between two symmetric blocks of sleep. And so rather than checking the phone, seeing, oh my God, it's 3 a.m. Oh no, I'm having a lousy night of sleep. Oh no, tomorrow's going to be terrible. Uh, and all the stories we layer on top of that, which actually activate us and make it so that we don't fall back asleep. Instead, you just wake up, you're like, oh, must be middle sleep. Pee, sip of water, back to bed, lie there with your eyes closed and no drama about it, no resistance about the fact that you're awake. And often that allows you to fall back into sleep in about... 15 minutes. Oh, excellent. Yes. So often it is the stories we tell ourselves about a certain experience that actually make the experience bad, where the experience was completely neutral or actually normal. Yeah. I love that. Oh, fantastic. Ellen, um, where can people who want to learn more about you? Where can they find you? How can they reach out to you? Sure. I'm most active on Instagram. So I'm Ellen Vora MD. Um, and on Facebook, same thing, Twitter, I guess, although I'm not really over there. And then um, TikTok increasingly, though it's very awkward. I'm not good at TikTok, but you can go and see my awkward videos on TikTok. Um, and my website is ellenvora.com. Great. And you also have a, a series of articles and also courses on anxiety on Mind Body Green, right? That's right. I have great courses over on Mind Body Green, one on sleep, one on depression, and one on anxiety. And then I'm cooking up something over at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, but that's not live yet. Uh, well, I hope this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for it. And I would love to check in with you again when you actually can talk. I know. Uh, it's going to be really fascinating, whatever it is you're cooking up. So I'd love to have you back on and follow up. Mariana, thank you so much. This has been a delight. Thank you, Ellen. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs> <laughs>